How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Uh, set aside the thoughts and distractions of whatever happened today and whatever is going to happen tomorrow. And we'll put our focus on the teaching of God's Word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to study your word, that your word is absolute truth and teaches us how to think, what to think, and how to live. Father, we pray that as we continue our study in this important subject of salvation, understanding everything that you have done for us to provide us with this so great salvation, and understand that it is a free salvation based on everything that you have done, based on your grace, not on our works or anything that we do. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand uh, all the dimensions of this salvation, that it may motivate us to continue to uh, grow and advance spiritually, that we may glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we continued our study in answering the question, what role does works have, if any, in salvation? And we asked the question, is there a necessary relationship between works and faith. The conflict that exists today is a conflict that exists between what is called lordship salvation and those who hold to a free grace salvation, and that is that salvation is a free gift of God and it is not based on works. A problem that we have historically is that there are three positions. The first is a faith plus works position where works is uh, set up at the very front uh, front of the uh, gospel offer that you have to believe plus something, believe, usually believe plus be baptized, believe plus join a church, believe and do good, where good works are front-loaded in the gospel. Then there's a position that says you believe it's not based on works, but works will, if it's genuine faith, works will necessarily follow. And this is uh, usually stated with the little uh, little statement that, uh, that while the faith that saves is always alone, uh, or while the faith that saves is alone, the faith that saves uh, is not. Uh, while faith, let me say that again. I may need to start this over. <laughs> while the faith that saves is while we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is not always alone. That's how it goes. While we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is not always alone. And that is a very subtle form of introducing uh, works by the back door, giving a, uh, a subtle work salvation that if it's genuine faith, it will necessarily include good works, that if you're truly a believer, 
that certain good works or fruit will necessarily be produced. And we begin a study of James 2 because this is the first of a three major passages where people go to try to prove that works have some role, if not at the beginning of salvation, at least in demonstrating that it's genuine faith. And our position is that this is a complete misreading of James chapter 2 and a misreading of the epistle of James. Last time we began in verse 14 and we looked at the first section which sets up the issue. And in verse 1, James asks the question, what profit is it? And we uh, translated that, what value is it to your spiritual life, my brethren, if someone claims he has faith, that is doctrine, but does not have works or application? Can that faith, and that's how it should be translated, uh, as it is in the New American Standard, can that faith save him? Can that doctrine save him? And I said that there were several important issues to discuss here. We had to understand what faith means. We had to understand what save means. We have to understand what works means. And the point of this section is not talking about salvation in terms of phase one salvation entering into heaven, but salvation is used three different ways. The basic meaning of the word sozo is to deliver. And one must always examine the context in which the word sozo for saved is used to see that from which we are being delivered. And in many passages, saved in the Bible does not mean saved from eternal damnation. It means saved in the sense of living out your spiritual life. Remember, we are saved three ways. In phase one, we are saved from the penalty of sin, that is, saved from eternal condemnation. In phase two, we are saved from the power of sin, that is, the power of the sin nature controlling our life during our spiritual advance. As we learn doctrine and apply doctrine, we learn that we do not need to live in under the control of the sin nature, but we can live under the control of the Holy Spirit and thus advance spiritually. And then in phase three, we are saved from the presence of sin. It is not until we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord that we receive a resurrection body and we are free from the sin nature. So we have to ask the question, which of these meanings for sozo, that is for saved, is James talking about? And it fits the context of the epistle that he is talking about phase two salvation because he is not talking to unbelievers, but to believers. And last time we saw that in James chapter 1, it was very clear that these uh, hearers were already saved. They had been uh, they had been given the gospel, and they had trusted in the gospel, and they had been brought forth by the word of truth and called first fruits of his creatures in James 1.18. Furthermore, again and again in this section, they are described as my brethren, or my beloved brethren, which is a technical term indicating that they were believers. So we concluded that James 2.14 is asking the question, not what does it value you if someone claims to have faith but doesn't have works, can that faith, that is a non-existent faith, save him, but that this is a faith that is just absent any application, doctrine. The meaning of faith is not the act of believing, but talks about that which is believed. Faith in the scriptures has one of two nuances or shades of meaning. 
the first is the act of trusting. The second is that which is, uh, which is believed, sort of like a doctrinal statement as we often ask someone, what is your faith? In other words, what doctrine do you believe? What denomination do you belong to? What religious persuasion are you? So James is asking the question, what value is doctrine if it doesn't have application? And then he gives a clear example related to the context of chapter 2 dealing with um, the application of impersonal love to another believer who is financially destitute. And the response of the believer who has no works is to just simply say kind words but not to do anything to alleviate the problem of poverty. And the conclusion in verse 17 is, Thus, faith by itself, that is doctrine alone, if it does not have application, is dead. And we had to answer the question, what does it mean that faith is dead? The two options are the lordship option, that this means that faith is non-existent. And the uh, option that we believe, and that is that faith is non-operational. And the point is that for something to be dead, it has to first be alive. It has to be present. And so faith, uh, dead, in other words, death in the scriptures rarely, if ever, means non-existent. Usually it has to do with separation. And here it has to do with a uh, faith that is separate from application. Thus also faith by itself, faith without application, is, uh, is non-productive. It is uh, non, it's not non-existent, it is just non-productive. It's not operational anymore. So the point of these first four verses is to emphasize the importance of application, that doctrine is important. It's not to denigrate doctrine. This isn't running down doctrine. This isn't saying, well, you're spending too much attention on doctrine. It's that, well, the attention on doctrine is great, but now you have to also have application. Then in verse 18, he's going to deal with some objections. There obviously is a conflict going on at that time in the church, and there are those who held a position that doctrine alone was all that you needed. You really didn't need application. They were what we would call on a head trip. They were just interested in accumulating a lot of academic information, and they were just interested in Bible study for the pure sake of of uh, intellectual absorption. They just were on an intellectual enjoyment trip, learning everything they could and trying to impress everybody with their knowledge of the Bible. And so these people, apparently, from the next two verses, argued that doctrine and application were not necessarily connected. Now, that's the idea. If you can capture that phrase, then you can understand what the issue is. The the opponent here is saying that there is no necessary connection between doctrine and application, that application is not necessary, and there is no uh, no necessity in having application and no value in it. And this is just the opposite of what James is arguing. Now, when we get into this, it's a very difficult uh, passage to understand, and it's kind of convoluted, and it's uh, made more complex and more difficult by the way the most English translations punctuate these verses. So the first thing we have to do is understand something about how this is structured in a literary way and who is speaking in which verses. 
So verses 18 and 19, we have to say, represent the voice of the objector. Now, if you look on the screen, you will see how the New King James Version punctuates verse 18. There we read, someone will say, comma, quote, you have faith and I have works, and then they close the quote. James 2.18, according to New American Standard, the objector only makes a short statement. You have faith and I have works. Now remember, in the original Greek text, there is no punctuation. There are no quotation marks in the original text. So the only way you can tell where the objector begins his speech and where he ends is by paying attention to literary and grammatical markers in the text, and it becomes very clear. It becomes very clear where the objector begins and where he ends, and it is not where most people, most of the English translations, put the mark. Let's look at that. These three verses. This is where the controversy uh, focuses. James 2:18. But someone will say, "You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works." You believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now I want you to pay attention to the grammar here. Notice that verse 20, verse 20 begins with an adversative conjunction, death. This changes the emphasis. And you have the statement here, O foolish man. Now, this is James responding to the objector. So it's very clear that by verse 20, James is now speaking again. Well, when does James begin to speak? It's clear from the grammar that the adversative debt at the beginning of verse 20 is what changes the subject. So on that basis, we would say that... James 2:18 and 19 are one statement by the objector. But someone will say is a classic introduction to what is called a diatribe format. Now, diatribe format is when someone is speaking and they have made a particular point and they realize that there are going to be certain objections to that point that he has made. So he puts into words the, the words of an opponent or an objector and says, well, this is a point that I've made, but someone might, someone might disagree with that. Someone might say thus and so. So he introduces that with this adversative clause, but someone might say, and you see the same kind of argumentation, the same kind of literary structure in Romans chapter 9, verses 19 to 20, as well as in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 36. So it's clear that the opponent, the words of the objector, are introduced by the clause, but someone will say, so the beginning of the objector statement is clearly the statement, you have faith and I have works. But the next sentence, or the next clause, show me, uh, show me your works, or show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith, uh, show you my faith by my works, is not set apart from that previous statement. There's nothing grammatically that sets it apart, that marks it apart as, as being uh, a statement that is 
going back to James. So that statement, the second half of James 2.18, should be included within the quote. Then we come to verse 19. Now, if you're going to shift back to the original speaker, there has to be some sort of structural or grammatical marker, something in the grammar to indicate that shift. And again, there is nothing there. You don't have an adversative. You don't have any kind of a, a, a conjunction there that would indicate a, a, a shift of speaker. So again, verse 19 continues to be the words of the objector. Now that's important to understand because verse 19 is one of those words, one of those verses that is constantly jerked out of context and you'll always hear somebody say, well yeah, the demons believe, uh, believe there's one God but they're not saved. Well first of all, uh, believing in one God isn't a soteriological, isn't the soteriological message. Believing that there is one God isn't the gospel message so that doesn't have anything to do with, with whether or not the demons are saved. Second, this doesn't have anything to do with truth. This is the objector's rationalization for his position. Verse 19 is the objector's rationalization for his position. It is not a true statement necessarily. So we have to take apart what the objector says here in verses 18 and 19 in order to understand the gist of his particular argument. Okay, first of all, he says, he makes the statement, you have faith and I have works. He, he is setting up uh, a, a circumstance. He says, okay, James, you have your doctrine and I have, and I have works. Let's take a hypothetical condition. And then the objector says, show me your faith without your works. Is it possible? He's being very sarcastic here. This, this, the tone of this passage is heavy with, uh, Irony in the academic sense, and for most of us, that just means he's being uh, very sarcastic. And he says, uh, uh, it, show me your doctrine by means of your works. Can you show what you believe, the, the, your whole doctrinal statement, everything you believe by, by how you live your life? Well, no, that's impossible, is his contention. He says, and on the other hand, I will show you my, my doctrine by, by my works. Says you can't, you can no more show your faith, show what you believe without application, than I can show you what I believe by looking at works. Works don't necessarily relate to what you believe. That is the contention of the objector. He is making the point that faith and works do not have a necessary connection. Now, there's a parallel to this in secular Greek literature. Uh, this information comes out of Jody Dillo's book, uh, Reign of the Servant Kings, where he uh, cites the writings of Theophilus, who is an ancient Greek author, in a work called Autolycus. Uh, uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, But even if you should say, notice the same diatribe format, uh, very similar to what we have in James 2.18, but someone will say. But even if you should say, uh, show me your God, I might say to you, show me your man, and I also will show you my God. In other words, Autolycus is making the same kind of statement that, that it, just as it's impossible to show, on the one hand, for one person to show that God exists, it's, on the other hand, it's, 
it just is impossible for him to show uh, a man uh, by showing or proving God. It's the same kind of sarcastic and unfulfillable demand that you find in other writers of Scripture. Uh, Epictetus is another example he cites in the discourses of uh, Epictetus, who uses this same kind of, uh, of diatribe. There he, Epictetus writes, Who in the world are you? The bull of the herd or the queen of the beehive? Show me the symbols of your rulership. And the point that he is making is it's not possible to do the showing. Now, let me go back and clarify this and make sure you understand this. In the function of a diatribe, you have the words of an objector. And the words of an objector makes a show-me statement. This show-me statement is designed to, to emphasize something that really can't be shown in the eyes of the objector. When he, when he says, show me thus and so, he is making a point that it's not possible. Uh, this is what's seen from both of these previous uh, examples from secular Greek literature. So when we look at verse 18, the objector is saying, on the one hand, you have doctrine, and I have works. I have works. Show me your faith, James. Show me your doctrine without your works. You can't do it any more than I can show you my doctrine by my works. So the point that the objector is making is that it's impossible to, just as it's impossible to show faith without works, it's impossible to show faith by works. In other words, both positions are impossible. And the only way that that makes sense is on the contention that the objector is saying there's no connection between doctrine and application. In other words, the objector is saying, James, you're completely wrong. You don't have to have works. See, if you make this say anything else, which is the typical approach, you read most commentators, they'll say that, that what the objector is saying is, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, you have to have works to demonstrate your faith. That's exactly what James is saying. So how would that be an objection? James' point is you have to have application to, to, and that's the point that he will make, is application validates your doctrine, not, not justification salvation, but in terms of spiritual growth and value for spiritual growth and spiritual advance. And the objector is saying that, that, that is claiming that that's irrational because faith and works have no necessary connection and you can just learn a lot of doctrine without any application. And this is clinched by the illustration he gives in verse 19. The objector drives this home by making the following statement. Now, we first, before we look at it, we have to correct the translation. James 2.19, James says, uh, I mean, the, the objector says, you, that is you, James, you believe that there is one God. And then it's translated, you do well. That is a pathetic translation. The Greek text uses the two words, kalos, which is from kalos, meaning good, and it is consistently used in this passage relating to, to, uh, uh, relating to a good work, and poies, meaning you do or you work. Poieo is the word that is used for a work in this passage. You do a good work. 
Now, what is James' contention? James' contention has been that faith should produce works, should do something. Poieo, you should, don't be a hearer only, but also a doer of good. We saw that back in um, James chapter 2, when he talks about the, um, or excuse me, James chapter 1, when he uses the mirror analogy. He says, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a uh, doer of good, a doer of good works. So this is, he's tying this together with this vocabulary, and he says, James, you have a belief on the one hand. You believe God is one. The result is that that in your life produces works, good works. On the other hand, you have demons. Demons believe the same thing. They know God is one. They believe God is one. And yet the consequence for them is that they shudder, they they tremble. So you have a belief that in you produces one thing. The same belief has a different effect in the demons. So how can you say that a belief has any necessary connection to application? In you, there's one, in, in both you and the demon, there's the same belief, but there's two completely opposite effects. So how in the world can you, James, claim that there's any necessary connection between faith and works? If there was, the demons would have the same response to the, the, the same belief that you have. So James 2:18 and 19, in summary, is the statement of, a, of an objector to James' position. James is claiming there's a connection between faith and works, and you should have works in order to... Um, Bring your faith to completion. That's what his point will be, and to bring uh, have for it to have spiritual value, and to bring you to spiritual maturity. The objector says, "No, I disagree. Application has nothing to do with it. Uh, you can be- all you need to do is believe. There's no necessary connection between faith and how you live and and its impact in your life." So James counters him. James comes in to counter him in verse 20. And James says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, James counters his argument, and he calls the man a foolish man. Now, right here, there are some Christians who would just get all squeamish about this because it seems like James is is calling him a name. Well, James is being very objective, and the person who is operating, apart from doctrine, in biblical terminology, is a fool. And he tells him such. He is a vain person. He he calls him in, um, in verse 20. Are you willing to recognize, you? actually it's you vain man, that faith uh, without works is useless? Arge, which means something that is idle, something that does not produce something, something that does not accomplish anything. So James is countering his argument and saying, but you foolish fellow, you have to you, you have to recognize that faith, if it doesn't have application, is really useless. He is basically countering him by saying, oh, what a foolish, nonsensical argument you've put forth. 
Doctrine apart from application accomplishes nothing for the spiritual life. And now I'm going to show you why. Verse 20 is really the beginning of James' uh, counter to, to the argument of the objector. And it introduces the two illustrations from the Old Testament. The first from Abraham and the second from Rahab. Now, this brings up another question that is usually raised in the context of our, our study of uh, of James, and that is, is James talking about a different kind of justification than Paul? Paul said that we were justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But James seems to suggest that there is a, another kind of justification, a justification by works. Now, this has led... This has led some people to think that James contradicts Paul. But this misunderstands and misreads both Paul and James. James is saying that there is a second kind of justification, but Paul recognizes second kind of justification as well. But this is not a justification that produces eternal life. This is a justification before man. I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's stop and look at verse 21, and we have to understand uh, specifically what is being being said here. James 2.21, let's just uh, read down through the next uh, two or three verses. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that the faith was working together with his works... And by works, faith was made perfect. And we'll see that that should be translated, faith was brought to maturity. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for, right, for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And then in verse 24, James makes his point. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now this is the conclusion and we sort of need to work our way backward from the conclusion here so uh, we understand his point. And in order to understand his point we have to uh, correct the translation here because it is mistranslated. The English of verse 24 seems to suggest that a man is justified not by faith alone but also by works. In other words, the and this is the contention of the lordship crowd, that you're justified by faith, and then your works also justify you. It's, it's a backdoor introduction of works. But this is based on a misunderstanding of the word only and, how, and its placement in the text and the translation in English. First of all, let's look at this word alone in the Greek. In the Greek, this is the adverb manas. The adverb manas. Now, an adverb modifies a verb. Just basic grammar. An adverb modifies a verb, not a noun. An adjective modifies a noun. An adverb modifies a verb. But if you look at this sentence... In the English, the last clause of verse 24, and not by faith only, only is the adverb that we're talking about, 
But in the way it's structured in the English, it appears to modify the noun faith. But a, an adverb cannot modify a noun. An adverb modifies a verb. Now, what is the verb in this sentence? The verb is dikaiao, is justified, which we see in the previous clause. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, in the second clause, the verb is not stated. It's what's called ellipsized. It is understood, but is not restated simply because it would make the sentence somewhat awkward. But actually, what, it is sa- what James is saying is you see then that a man is justified by works and not justified only, and not only justified by faith. See, if you translate it that way, you put the only in as an adverb modifying the ellipsized verb justified. Let me read that for you again. You see then that a man is justified by works and not only justified by faith. You see then that a man is justified by works and not only justified by faith. And there he indicates that there are two different kinds of justification. See, the lordship idea is that you're justified by faith and by works. One justification done by faith and by works. But by understanding the adverb correctly and attaching it to the verb, we see that there are two justifications. A justification by works and a justification by faith. Now, does this contradict Paul? Not at all. Let's turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Romans 4, verse 1, Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You see, in verse 2, the implication is that if Abraham performs good works, he is justified. It's a legitimate justification, but it is before men and not before God. See, Paul says, if Abraham was justified by works, and he was, he has something to boast about. It's legitimate, but it's a justification before men. He can't boast about it before God. For what does the Scripture say, verse 3? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So justification by works may grant you a certain validation of your faith before men, but it is not valuable for your justification salvation phase one or sanctification salvation phase two. Let's go back for a minute and review the doctrine of justification. In the doctrine of justification, it does not mean just as if I had never sinned. What it does mean is that the sinner is declared to be righteous at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. 
At the instant that you, the believer, put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So at that instant, you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Underneath that garment of perfect righteousness, you're still a sinner. It's not as if you'd never sinned. You're still a sinner. And you still live as a sinner. You're still just as rotten, just as uh, lusty, just as fleshly as you ever were. But when God looks at you, he looks at you in terms of the imputed perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when God the Father looks at you, possessing the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, he declares you at that instant to be just. It is a judicial decision from the Supreme Court of Heaven. That's what we mean when we say that justification is forensic. It's not experiential. It doesn't mean that your behavior has changed. It doesn't mean that you're more moral than you were. It doesn't mean that you're less prone to sin than you were. It doesn't even mean that your sin nature is less uh, capable than it was. In fact, what you may discover in your life is you're going to sin in ways you never sinned before, simply because now you're a target in the angelic conflict, and uh, things are going to get much tougher than they ever were before. So justification means that at the instant of salvation, the believer receives the imputation of Christ's righteousness. God the Father looks at that possession of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and declares the believer to be just. This is what it means to be justified by faith alone. This is the doctrine that Martin Luther recovered in the Reformation that we talked about several weeks ago, where he understood that at that instant of salvation, the believer is perfectly just and righteous before God based on the possession of Christ's imputed righteousness. And at the same time, he is still a lousy sinner, a rotten sinner, totally obnoxious to God, but because God looks at him as possessing the perfect righteousness of Christ, he is declared righteous and has eternal life and has access to heaven. It does not mean that the nature of the sinner is changed. It is that doctrine that was somehow lost or confused by Calvin later on because of the pressure that uh, that the reformers received from the Roman Catholic Church and the argument that, uh, well, if you teach that people are saved simply by trusting in Christ, then then what's the motivation to moral conduct and 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 living a good uh, moral life? Uh, you're just going to produce a bunch of libertines and uh, licentious believers, and so. Calvin went back to the old Augustinian doctrine of perseverance of the saints, that the person who is truly saved is going to necessarily produce fruits that are in keeping with that salvation. That, of course, is completely false and is not part of Scripture at all. So in Romans 4... Paul is talking about justification, and he says that that Abraham, according to the flesh, could be justified before man, but not before God. And then in verse 3, he references Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. So I want you to, this quote is going to be used by James as well. So I want you to uh, turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And we're going to look at this particular passage. This is a crucial passage to understand uh, from the life of Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. 
Now, Genesis 15 comes after a number of events have already occurred in the life of Abraham. Let's review them very briefly. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God makes a certain promise to Abraham. He calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, tells him to leave his country, his family, his father's house, and he's going to take him to a land that God will give him. And there God will make him a great nation, and God will bless him. God will make his name great, and that he will be a blessing to all nations. This is the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. Abram then responds to God and moves out, but he doesn't go all the way. He just goes... As um, he just goes part of the way, and he uh, eventually he goes he goes to Haran for a while, and then they leave Haran and they go to Canaan. And when he comes to Canaan, he uh, has numerous adventures there. He goes he goes through various tests where God tests him through famine. He fails that test. He goes down to Egypt. Uh, God makes another promise to him in Genesis uh, chapter 13, uh, verses 15 and 16. He reiterates the uh, land promise of the covenant. And there we see the separation of Abraham from Lot. Chapter 14, we see Lot's uh, captivity and, uh, and rescue. And then uh, Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek at the end of chapter 14. And then it is after Abram's victory over the five kings of the east that God reiterates his covenant to Abram in Genesis chapter 15. And it is in this context, after all of these other things have already taken place, that God makes his promise, this unconditional promise to Abraham. And he concludes it in verse 5. Uh, God brought Abraham outside and said, Look now toward heaven, count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then we have a statement in verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now many people think that in verse 6, that's when Abraham finally believes in God. But that doesn't make sense because of all the things that have happened already. God has given, already given him the Abrahamic covenant and stated it to him twice and, and uh, clearly been working in Abr- Abram's life. Verse 6 is actually a parenthesis. God has blessed Abram richly, and this is part of the, this is instantiated in the Abrahamic covenant here in these first five verses. And in verse 6, Moses, the writer, is reminding his Jewish readers of why God is blessing Abram. Because Abram had already believed. See, we are blessed not because of what we do. We are blessed because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to the doctrine of of imputation a minute. At that instant of salvation, when when, when God the Father imputes to us, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is on the basis of our possession of Christ's righteousness that God blesses us. He blesses us with eternal life. He blesses us with the uh, 40 things that we receive at the instant of salvation. Uh, All the things that God gives us in life, all the blessings he gives us, is not because of what we do or we don't do, because that would be works. It is on the basis of our possession of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Moses is making the point, reminding his readers that the blessing of God to Abram is on the basis of his possession of imputed righteousness. 
Now the Hebrew is uh, is not as precise as the as the uh, as the Greek could be, but let's look at the Hebrew. Verse six says, "And he believed in the Lord." And the verb here is the hyphial perfect of the verb amen, which means to believe, to have a firm trust in, to have a foundation in. Now, in Hebrew, there are only two tenses. There's the imperfect tense, which usually expresses, with a vowel consecutive like this, usually expresses present time action. And we don't have an imperfect here, we have a perfect. The perfect tense usually relates a simple past or can be translated with the English uh, perfect tense. That is, action that has been completed in the past with results that go on. And that is how I think it should be translated here in Genesis 15:6. that Moses is saying, now Abram had already believed in the Lord. This happened in the past. This happened before Genesis 12:1. Abram believed God in the past, and God had imputed it to him for righteousness. And that is the basis for all of these temporal blessings that God has been bestowing on Abram in Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15. Now, let's go back to James 2.21. We understand that justification is by faith alone. Justification, salvation is by faith alone. But there is also, according to Romans 14.2, a justification uh, by works that, that uh, Paul recognizes. Now, in James 2.21, James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, this event that is referred to here, doesn't take place until Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 15:6 clearly states that that Abraham had already been justified. So he's justified by Genesis 15. He was justified actually by Genesis 12. He's not justified in Genesis 22. That comes actually 35 years following the statement of Genesis 15:6. So what is going on here? Well, what's going on here is that in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham faced his final test before he entered into spiritual maturity. He had gone through a large number of tests. He went through the famine test. He went through the family test, the priority test. He went through the prosperity test and adversity test. And finally, in Genesis 22, God is testing Abraham to see if he is really focused on God's plan and purpose for his life. To get an understanding of this, let's hold our place in James and just turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hold your place in James and just turn over to Hebrews Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Hebrews 11:17. There we read, by faith, that is on the basis of the doctrine in his soul, by means of faith, Abraham, when he was tested. What is one of the major themes in the epistle of James? Can it all join, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or various tests? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its maturing result. And the word there, 
or is teleos. Now, in Hebrews 11:17, we read that Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, "In Isaac your seed shall be called." Concluding, see, when Abraham offers up Isaac, when he gets ready to pick up that sacrificial knife on the altar in Genesis 22. For those of you who may not be familiar with Genesis, the episode in Genesis 22, God told Abraham to take his son up to Mount Moriah on the altar and there to offer him as a sacrifice to God to kill him. And Abraham followed his instructions to the letter and was willing to do so because of the doctrine in his soul. He knew, this is what he knew in verse 19, he concluded that God was able to raise Isaac up. He knew that God had promised him a, a innumerable descendants through Isaac, the promised seed. Verse, that's verse 18. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. Because he knew God was true to his word and God would fulfill his promise, he knew that even if God allowed him to finish the task and actually kill Isaac, that God would just raise Isaac from the dead. So Abraham was trusting God in the midst of that test. He was completely relaxed, and he knew that whatever happened, God would still fulfill his promise through Isaac and that uh, God would raise him from the dead. Verse 19, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which also he received him in a figurative sense. So Abram is facing this uh, major test that is referred to in James 1, or James 2.21. And Abraham is going to be justified, that is, in terms of this, this demonstration of his spiritual maturity by application of the doctrine in his soul when he offers Isaac his son on the altar. Verse 22. Do you see, James says to his objector, that his faith, that is the doctrine in his soul, was working together with his application, that is, his taking Isaac up on the up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. That his faith was working together with application, and by means of application, his faith was made perfect. And there's the word teleos, brought to completion. This is an exemplification of the exact principle that James stated in his introduction in James 1, 3, and 4, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let it patience have its perfect work. And there's the same word, teleos, have its completing work, its work of maturing, of maturation. So the point of verse 22 is simply that faith, when it has application, uh, works together to produce spiritual maturity in the individual believer. And so that is the point. Now, verse 23, and the Scripture says, and the Scripture was fulfilled, that is, verse 23, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. It is brought to completion... It is brought to completion in the sense that that Abraham begins with positional righteousness, with imputed righteousness, and this is uh, brought to completion as a applied righteousness and practical righteousness in Abraham's application of doctrine. Uh, and so Abraham is then called the friend of God. 
the quotes here are from uh, Genesis 15:6 and also 2 Chronicles 20 verse 7 which says didst thou not O our God drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham thy friend forever and Isaiah 41:8 but you O Israel my servant Jacob whom I have chosen descendant of Abraham my friend this title For Abraham, that he is God's friend, is the highest title and recognizes the deep love that God had for Abraham. And this love was based originally on Abraham's positional righteousness, but second on his spiritual maturity and his advance in terms of production righteousness through learning doctrine and applying it consistently in his life. And so James' conclusion is that this scripture, even though Abraham believes God before Genesis 12, he receives positional righteousness, imputed righteousness. When he grows and matures and applies doctrine, that positional righteousness is fulfilled as experiential or production righteousness. The conclusion then in verse 24 is you see then a man is justified by works and not only justified by faith. Likewise, and then he goes to a second illustration in verse 25 and refers to the episode of Rahab. Rahab the harlot. How would you like to be remembered throughout history, even though you're a believer, uh, remembered throughout all of history by your pre-salvation occupation as a prostitute? Rahab the hooker. Or Rahab the hoe, as some people might say. So Rahab the harlot is justified by works. She was saved. She had somehow heard the gospel already, and she was saved when the spies came into Jericho. And so she was willing to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to protect these Jewish spies rather than continue to follow uh, the Canaanites. And her loyalty to, was to God, so she trusted God rather than the, um, the, the Canaanites to protect her. And that is her protection. She receives the messengers. She sends them, sends them out another way. She protects them. That's an application of doctrine. And so she, too, advances to spiritual maturity because she applies what she knows about God, and it's that application of doctrine that moves her along the way of spiritual maturity in the midst of that particular test. And then James concludes in verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead so also faith without works is dead. Now here's the comparison. You have a body without the spirit. Now this is not talking about the human spirit. This is another one of those examples where the word uh, pneuma simply refers to the immaterial part of man. We have to be very careful not to uh, try to always make a word mean the same thing in every context. And certain words like pneuma and suke often have uh, a variety of meanings, and it's not good to always think that every time you see the word spirit, it's the human spirit in a technical sense. So here he's simply saying the body without the spirit, that is, it could even be translated breath here, and I think that would be a more accurate translation. Pneuma means wind, it means breath, it means spirit, and here it means the body without the breath is dead. So if you're not breathing, you're dead. 
Now, if you look at a dead body, what do you know about it? Was it non-existent? No. It formerly breathed. It was formerly alive. So the issue, once again, is not non-existent faith. That is, faith that would not produce justification salvation. But it is faith that is no longer alive or operational. That is a faith that is no longer productive. So he, James concludes, just as the body without breath is not operational, so faith, doctrine, without application is also non-operational and non-productive. And his point throughout this, as it has been from the beginning of the section back in James 1.17, is that you can't just listen to doctrine. You can't just be on an academic trip. You can't just learn doctrine, accumulate a lot of uh, categorical doctrines in your notebook, and write a lot of notes in your Bible. You have to put it into practice. The academic knowledge, the gnosis, has to become epinosis, and it has to become... Uh, in, come in your soul where you apply it consistently in the midst of tests. That is the process of spiritual growth. Every time you have a situation in life, whether it is a just a mental situation or where it's an overt situation, where you have to choose between applying doctrine and trusting God or doing it your own way, that's a test. And when you decide to trust God and apply doctrine, then you advance incrementally towards spiritual maturity. That is James' point. Now, next time we'll come back and look at the parable of the soils in order to look at, understand more fully the issue of fruit and how fruit relates to faith. Uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to examine these things, and to understand more clearly what James is saying about faith and works and the importance of application of doctrine. It is not that application validates our salvation or is, is evidence of our salvation, but it is the means of advancing to spiritual maturity. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.